0: In what we're doing now, we're getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is.
1: We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic like
0: All right, folks, we are back, Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. Well, it's good to be back. Today we have a wonderful guest in store for you, so I don't want to take too much time rambling and so forth. I was going to announce some local events, um, but I suggest people go to my Facebook page at Vince Emanuele, where I will be posting all sorts of local and regional events. I know there's a lot of events coming up in Chicago, um, events happening in the Northwest Indiana region, uh, throughout the Great Lakes and so forth. So hopefully people will be getting that information through my social media account. Uh, I can, If we have some time at the end, I might announce a few uh, of those events. But nonetheless, I would much rather just sort of jump in immediately with Andrew Bacevich. So let me let me see. if Is he in the line yet? Let me check with the uh, producer. Okay, great. So let me give a quick introduction, then we'll jump right into it, because this book is an excellent book and required reading. And as anyone who's listened to the program in the past knows, this is obviously a big part of... Um, where my activism came from, uh, returning home from the war in Iraq after my second deployment and getting involved with Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace. So in any case, um, Andrew Basevich is a professor of international relations and history at Boston University, a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. He received his Ph.D. In American diplomatic history from Princeton University. Before joining the faculty of Boston University, he taught at West Point and John Hopkins. Professor Bacevich is the author of Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War, and his previous books include Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, The Long War, a new history of US national security policy since World War II, where he was an editor, and The New American Militarism, How Americans are Seduced by War. And also, I'm sorry, American Empire, The Realities and Consequences of U.S. Diplomacy. So welcome to the program and welcome back, Professor Basevich. Oh, thank you. So let's jump right into it. In your book, America's War for the Greater Middle East, you set out to answer four fundamental questions. The first being what motivated the United States to act as it has. Number two, what have the, res- the civilians responsible for formulating policy and soldiers charged with implementing it sought to accomplish regardless of their intentions, what actually ensued, and number four, with what consequences. Let's start with your first question concerning motivations. America's interests in the Middle East, as I think most Americans now know, primarily revolve around access to cheap energy. Can you talk about the 1973 oil crises and how it foreshadowed things to come?
1: Well, the narrative of my book uh, spans from 1980 up to the the present, Uh, and I start with 1980 because that's when, in January of that year, that's when Jimmy Carter promulgated the Carter Doctrine. Uh, Your listeners will remember, some of them will remember, that the Carter Doctrine was a statement that said that the Persian Gulf was a vital U.S. national security interest and therefore a place that we were willing to fight for. And, and the important point there is that prior to 1980, there was no particular statement, intention, or preparation uh, for us to fight in the Persian Gulf or anywhere else in the Middle East. Well, what prompted that, uh, that statement? Setting aside domestic political considerations, which were not inconsequential, uh, the Carter Doctrine was prompted by two very important developments. First was the overthrow of the Shah uh, and the coming to power of an anti-American revolutionary regime in Iran. And the second uh, was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December of 1979, uh, an action undertaken by the Soviets for what really were defensive purposes, but an action interpreted in Washington as suggesting that the, the Soviets were on the march and that af- after they... Uh, gobbled up Afghanistan, they would proceed on to Iran and to to Saudi Arabia. So so those two actions together uh, suggested that the U.S. position in the Persian Gulf was badly weakened uh, and that unless the U.S. undertook a major U.S. military commitment that our access to Persian Gulf oil then perceived to be crucial to the American way of life, that our access would be jeopardized. So the process of militarizing U.S. policy in that region began. Militarization, I should emphasize, that began focusing on the Persian Gulf, but over time uh, came to encompass a far wider area.
0: Now, what preceded the Carter Doctrine uh, in terms of U.S. foreign policy in the region?
1: I mean, uh, mine is a military history, and I, I emphasize that because I'm not arguing that there was no U.S. policy or U.S. involvement in the region before 1980. Uh, certainly, uh, I mean, uh, probably the date to begin uh, official U.S. involvement would be the end of World War II, when Franklin Roosevelt uh, made his commitment to, to defend the Saudi monarchy. And that was a commitment that, that derived from the growing perception in uh, national security circles in Washington that that, the, that Saudi oil was going to have a have a pivotal role in in the in the future, uh, so the United States had a presence, had interest uh, prior to 1980, uh, but the United States had generally avoided any major uh, military involvement. You know, we uh, had a very brief intervention in Lebanon in 1958 during the Eisenhower administration, lasted a couple of weeks, basically no bloodshed. We maintained a token force uh, in the Persian Gulf at Bahrain, but really it was a token force, naval force, not one that had any significant uh, combat capabilities. Why the lack of military attention to the region? Well, because uh, in, in, the, in the context of the Cold War, there were two other parts of the world where we were uh, geared up to fight. Uh, one of those, of course, was Western Europe, where we maintained very substantial uh, U.S. forces to contain, and if necessary, to engage the Warsaw Pact. And then the other part of the world was East Asia, where we'd already fought a war in Korea, we'd fought a war in Vietnam, and even after Vietnam continued to maintain, as we do today, uh, very substantial U.S. forces. So, so prior to 1980, we were geared up to fight some places, uh, not in the Middle East, and that's what began to change after uh, Carter promulgated his, his doctrine.
0: Now, you mentioned that there were some in, non, not inconsequential domestic considerations. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Carter, Carter in 1980, uh, 1980 was a pre- presidential election year. Uh, Carter, uh, as, as presidents do, was hoping to uh, win a second term. Uh, but he was perceived at that point as a weak and ineffective president. I mean, he was perceived as weak in part. Uh, because uh, he had uh, "quote unquote" allowed the Shah to be overthrown, and because uh, the the Soviets had uh, undertaken aggressive action uh, in Afghanistan, so those facts seem to show that uh, Carter didn't didn't uh, command any respect on the international stage. There was also the fact that in the wake of Vietnam, the American economy was suffering, uh, uh, unemployment was high. Uh, uh interest rates were even higher that's when that's when the term stagflation uh, was coined to describe the condition of the american economy uh and he, carter per, was perceived to be somebody who simply wasn't getting things done uh was, wasn't generating or meeting those expectations of economic growth that, uh, that that americans had so uh during the summer of 79 he had made a famous speech uh, known as the Malay's speech, even though he never used the term, in which he had uh, made his case to the American people for a fundamental change in, uh, in uh, fundamental change not simply in our policies or our purpose, but in the definition of freedom. Uh, his, his appeal had implied the need for sacrifice, a uh, belt tightening on the part of the American people that was roundly rejected, uh, and so I think that, the, from in, from a domestic political perspective, the the Carter Doctrine speech of January 1980 was a way of of making a case to the American people that he was tough, uh, that he was an effective leader, and that therefore he deserved election to a second term. Uh, and of course, that wasn't going to happen because Ronald Reagan was going to going to defeat him in November.
0: Now you talk about this. Or Carter mentioned this crisis in American values, but also you share some of these beliefs, if, I, if I'm uh, interpreting your words correctly. What, what, what do you make of that speech and what this crisis in American values means for, say, U.S. policy in the region? Well, I this think it's sort a of remarkable insatiable speech. need for oil, cheap access to energy, not wanting to change our lifestyle, and so on.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's a remarkable speech. It's poorly delivered. Uh, but it's easily available on on YouTube, and uh, you know your listeners could uh, could could watch it themselves. I mean, the the gist of the speech, the core of the speech, was an argument on Carter's part that said that uh, we we collectively had fallen prey to a a false definition of freedom that we were defining freedom in material terms in in terms of, of of consumption of acquisition of of having things and carter argued that uh that there was an emptiness uh in american life that that consumption was unlikely to fill uh and he was further arguing uh that by uh, by by addressing the then ongoing energy crisis uh, not by demanding more, but by disciplining ourselves as a people and demonstrating that we could get by with less, that that process of sacrifice uh, would facilitate a redefinition of freedom uh, that looked more toward, as he described it, uh, a, a traditional value set. Uh, and and to your point, yes, I find that... Uh, rather attractive Uh, I think I think that there are enormous truths uh, embedded in that speech Uh, but it's important to note that uh, at that time uh, Carter's appeal was roundly rejected and I would argue that here in 2017 such an appeal would be no more likely uh, to succeed we collectively don't want to get by with less we want more Uh, And we collectively tend to define freedom, uh, not in terms of the pursuit of a common good or uh, the maintenance of a traditional value set. Uh, Even today, we tend to find, collectively, tend to define freedom in terms of of more, uh, of satisfying uh, appetites, of exercising autonomy. Uh, And uh, I share the view that Carter expressed that... uh, that's a deeply defective uh, vision.
0: And you share that belief as a self-identified conservative. I think a lot of people who are listening to the program today maybe have a warped view of what conservatism or traditional conservatism is. Can you talk a little bit about that, why that would resonate with you, someone who is a self-identified Catholic and conservative?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, my view of conservatism is, first of all, that the uh, object of the exercise is to conserve, uh, I mean, the, to to recognize the value of 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 those things which have been achieved and built uh, by earlier generations, and to ensure their survival, I, I think a conservative is interested in conserving. ought to be interested in conserving, also in the se- sense that we are called upon to, to be good stewards of. Of creation, and uh, I am very much uh, in the camp that says that uh, we are abusing creation, climate change being of course the the the, the, the most compelling symptom of of what that abuse uh, is is producing so so whereas people who are most people who self identify as consumers, I think this is fair to say uh, Look look to uh, economic growth uh, and technological advance uh, as the keys to uh, utopia. Uh, I am generally persuaded that the emphasis on economic growth and the confidence in, in technology actually put us on the road to perdition. Uh but but within among people who self identify as conservatives, mine is definitely a, a minority view. My my view is that what passes for conservatism in the Republican Party, for example, isn't conservatism. Uh I don't know what would be an appropriate label, but it's not doesn't satisfy my understanding of what conservatism means.
0: Well I remember coming home from uh, the military in 2006, and of course we know who was in power at the time. And then I remember taking college courses and reading people like Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk, and thinking to myself, "This is a much different version of conservatism than what I'm seeing on the evening news or what I'm hearing in policy speeches." So that, that might be an aside; you don't really have to comment on that. But that's no, just I something. Think, that, I, th-
1: I think I think you're I think you're exactly right. I also think that that the uh, the the perspective I was trying to describe also translates into the realm of of foreign policy. Uh, George W. Bush, that you just referred to, was persuaded after 9-11 that it was incumbent upon the United States to transform large parts of the Islamic world, to to use American military power to bring democracy, uh, to liberate uh, 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 places like uh, Iraq. And that sort of thinking... Uh, was the, produced uh, a, a huge disaster at, at great cost to us and, frankly, at even greater cost uh, to the uh, ir- Iraqi people. So I, th- I think conservatism Absolutely. also translates into a, a, a circumspect, prudent, pragmatic uh, view with regard to the potential of American military power to bring about change in a world that is resistant to change.
0: So finishing the Carter period, you also mentioned a connection between the Truman Doctrine and the Carter Doctrine. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I mean, if I remember what I wrote, it was simply that uh, (laughs) Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor to uh, Jimmy Carter, and I think probably in many respects was the principal architect of the Carter Doctrine, saw the Carter Doctrine as a... Uh, a a, a counterpart, an equivalent to uh, the Truman Doctrine. Of course, the Truman Doctrine was a statement back in 1967 at the very outset of the Cold War that it had was kind of an open-ended commitment on the part of the United States to support anybody uh, who was resisting uh, communism. Uh, in, in, and, and because it was so open-ended, it resulted in uh, the U.S. becoming involved in places where we had no business being involved and where U.S. interests were only minimally involved. And I'm referring, of course, above all, uh, to, to, the, to Vietnam and what became the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War emerged from the logic of the, of the Truman Doctrine. And in many respects one could say the same thing about the Iraq war of 2003 that it is an offspring of the of the Carter doctrine of 1980 whether even though Brzezinski himself would uh, re- reject that uh, that claim hmm.
0: so Ronald Reagan is elected in 1980 of course as you mentioned this is the year after the Soviet Union invades and occupies Afghanistan by 1985 as you also note Major changes were taking place in the USSR, notably changes in its internal leadership. Also we have the Iraq-Iran war, otherwise known as the Eight- Year War. Can you take us up to this period, the beginning stages or the first term of, of uh, uh, I'm sorry, Ronald Reagan's uh, in the White
1: House? Well, the Carter Doctrine initiated a commitment, uh, but there was no real strategy. Uh, you know, detailed strategy uh, that would exp- that would operationalize that that, that commitment. Uh, what there was is a the, the wheels of the bureaucracy starting to crank in order to uh, lay the basis for U.S. military intervention in the region. the The scenario, uh, the, the the scenario that provided the basis for planning early on was a scenario that postulated, uh, preposterously, uh, postulated that, that Soviet forces were going to invade Iran and then move from Iran on to threaten uh, Saudi Arabia. As a practical matter, uh, what what the United States began to do was to intervene in a fairly pell-mell sort of a way, uh, first intervention, if you want to call it that, was the peacekeeping operation in Lebanon that culminated in the Beirut bombing of of 1983. A couple hundred Marines killed to no purpose whatsoever. And I think that is an example of the extent to which there was no connecting thread uh, in terms of where U.S. military forces in the Islamic world were going and, and, and what they intended to achieve. There was a, there was a vague expectation that, was, that existed in the 80s, just as it continues to exist today, a vague expectation that somehow or other the adroit application of American military might was going to sort things out, uh, was going to fix things. At different times, fixing things implied producing stability at other times, fixing things, imagine that we were spreading democracy or advancing the cause of of human rights. But the connecting tissue was the expectation, again, true in the 1980s, true today, that somehow or other the key to fixing things was, was to apply American military power. And my book argues that guess what, that never happened. It's not that there were not... Uh, Uh, putative successes along the way. And indeed, uh, one of the greatest of those putative successes was the Gulf War of 1990-1991, in my narrative, the second Gulf War. uh, Most Americans know that by the term Operation Desert Storm. Desert Storm uh, undertaken in order to uh, eject Iraqi forces occupying Kuwait, did succeed in doing that. Kuwait was liberated and returned to the control of the the ruling royal uh, family. But but the Iraq War didn't solve the problem, the Iraq War of 1990-91. All it did was to draw the United States more deeply into a region Drawing U.S. forces more deeply into the region and setting the stage for yet further uh, conflict. So, so there have been operations that policymakers depicted as successful, uh, but those success those successes never translated into uh, a, a conclusive political success. And of course, the purpose of going to war is to try to advance political purposes. <laughs>
0: Now I want to move backward to the Reagan era, and we'll get. I want to get to the to the Second Gulf War, as you label it, in a minute here. But I I'm also thinking of a portion in your book where you're talking about, or you're writing about. I'm sorry, General uh largely known for his role during the Second Gulf War, but he also makes an appearance in the second chapter of your book as the role of the commander of CENTCOM. Can you talk a little bit about the inception of CENTCOM because now it's playing an outsized role uh in American foreign policy. I'm thinking of people's work like uh Nick Terse's work on the on the subject.
1: Yeah. Well uh so so Carter declares that we need to defend the Persian Gulf in nineteen eighty. And the Pentagon says, well by golly we're not ready to do that. How are we going to do it? Uh the initial response was to create a new headquarters called the joint uh, rapid deployment task force. Uh and, and that uh, was succeeded in short order by a new regional command, uh, the United States Central Command. The Pentagon likes to carve up the globe into different sections and then assign a four-star officer to be responsible uh, for, the, for the countries in that region. Responsibility meaning this is the place where you should plan to go fight. And uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, the initial... Uh, planning contingency that was a focus for CENTCOM was the Soviet contingency. But once the Cold War was coming to an end, this is the time when Schwarzkopf had had just become the CENTCOM commander, it was apparent by 1989, with the Berlin Wall coming down and the Soviet Empire disintegrating, that it was simply impossible uh, that the Red Army was going to attack into Iran and onto Saudi Arabia. So Schwarzkopf said, hmm, uh, we need to think up a new scenario uh, that would explain what CENTCOM exists to do. And the scenario he came up with was one of Saddam Hussein uh, posing a threat to Saudi Arabia. So now the purpose came to be, let's get ready to intervene in the Persian Gulf in order to throw back the legions of Saddam Hussein. There was a, an, an element of irony here because during the first Gulf War, that's the conflict that most people know of as the Iran-Iraq War that that occurred from 1980 to 1988, during that conflict, the United States was actually supporting Saddam Hussein uh, against Iran, both directly and indirectly. So uh, until roughly 1988, we found that we could uh, collaborate with Saddam Hussein beginning in 1989 Uh, we decided he was going to be a foe that we were going to then be prepared to oppose
0: and this sort of madness and incoherence of this period i think is best summed up i'm glad i wrote this quote down your explanation of the first or not explanation but a description of what happened during the first gulf war uh, what people commonly refer to as the iraq iran war you write quote looking the other way Also describes the U.S. response when Israel began selling Iraq large quantities of U.S. arms and spare parts to sustain the Ayatollah Khomeini's war machine. Ostensible allies, Israel and the United States thus found themselves supporting opposite sides in a war in which both warring parties were stridently anti-Israel and anti-American, unquote.
1: Well, I mean, the whole thing is fraught with uh, contradictions uh, and ironies uh, that I think deserve reflection at the present moment. Uh, But, uh, I mean, what what does all that say? What what all that says is the United States had decided that uh, the Persian Gulf was a region of vital interest uh, to our well-being, and yet really hadn't thought its way through the politics of the region uh, such that our, our, our policies cohered. One of the things I note in the book, in 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 in, in examining the the uh, the thinking that informed uh, CENTCOM planners uh, in the early stages of this of this narrative, well, I was struck by how oblivious they were to the history of the region, uh, to where these countries, uh, countries like Iraq and Syria, uh, came from. Oblivious to uh, cultural and, and religious divisions and tensions. They they, they saw the, the, the war planning process as one of simply calculating how many ships and how many airplanes would be required uh, to move a certain tonnage or a certain number of soldiers over a certain distance, that it was a deployment problem uh, more than anything else. And I think that that Absence of sensitivity to history, culture, religion, and so on, uh, it, it has bedeviled us all along the way. And certainly, by the time you get to the the fullest military engagement uh, which occurs in the post9/11 period, that's one explanation for the miscalculations that uh, informed uh, the, the wars undertaken. In Afghanistan and Iraq, both of which, of course, continue down to the present moment.
0: So let's bring I want to bring us up to that period. Beyond the Second Gulf War, the U.S. was engaged in military operations in Bosnia, Kosovo, Turkey, Iraq, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and Sudan during the 1990s. Many people, though, I think, see the 90s as this peaceful period. Um, Let's start with Bill Clinton's first term, or we could even talk about both if you want, uh, sort of starting with Bosnia and Somalia and so on. What can you tell listeners about this period and why it is important in continuing this, this narrative?
1: Well, I mean, a couple of reasons. The first is because the perception that the 1990s is this period of peace or inaction is simply uh, not the case. Uh, Bill Clinton... Intervened on a promiscuous basis. Now his interventions tended to be uh, small scale. Uh, they tended to we tended to incur relatively modest uh, casualties. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we were throwing our weight around militarily in the region and learn nothing. I, I mean, in retrospect, uh, it, it seems to me that the pivotal uh, experience of that period was the Somalia in. Uh, intervention undertaken by the elder Bush at the end of 1992 and then inherited by Clinton and culminating in the famous Mogadishu firefight of October 1993. Uh, Clinton cut his losses. We walked away from that intervention. We uh, passed out medals and congratulated soldiers on their bravery. And I think we missed really what was the central lesson of the Mogadishu uh, firefight, which was that U.S. forces engaged in, in combat in large cities, foreign cities, against irregular forces, are likely to find that their technological advantages are not decisive. Uh, and of course, uh, had we been more attentive uh, to those lessons, then perhaps the uh, approach taken in the intervention of 2003 into Iraq which involved very substantial combat against irregular forces in large cities maybe we would have undertaken a different approach we didn't and we didn't do very well
0: but those in interventions under Clinton at least in Bosnia and Kosovo were widely considered successful now you you sort of talk about the second gulf war in the same way that taken on its own or within sort of a vacuum, you can maybe make an argument that they were successful, but taken in the scope of 40 years of policy and what it has led to, um, not really a success, at least in terms of uh, U.S. perspective. You bet. Is this, I mean, am I so, correct in that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Kosovo intervention uh, undertaken against uh, Milosevic uh, and the, governing the rump of Yugoslavia, which at that point were, was reduced basically to, to Serbia, uh un- undertaken on behalf of an organization that the state department classified as a terrorist organization the Kosovo liberation army succeeded in the sense that it it did secure the independence of of, of Kosovo uh and you know stop the story there uh and and it was a victory uh i think i think again i think there were false lessons Drawn from that, related to the uh, effectiveness of American air power as an as an instrument of capable of independent decision, uh, but but more than that, I think that it it proved to be irrelevant uh, with regard to uh, bringing about any uh, solution to the dysfunction afflicting the broader Islamic world.
0: So we have George Bush comes into office, of course, in 2000 mired or 2001, I'm sorry, mired in controversy and doubt. I'm thinking of a portion where you're writing in the book about his foreign policy lacking vision and therefore largely influenced by people like Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, Can you talk about the inception of the global war on terror? the aftermath of 9-11, and then first, of course, the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, I think the first point to make is that George W. Bush knew next to nothing about U.S. national security policy when he was elected. We could say the same thing about Donald Trump. We could say the same thing about Barack Obama. say the same thing about Bill Clinton. We haven't elected a president who really hmm. had any significant seasoning uh in the realm of foreign policy and national security policy since George Herbert Walker Bush uh so we elect these guys they're all kind of learn on the job uh, when George W Bush was running he promised to be a realist uh he denounced uh, Bill Clinton's penchant for nation building uh he offered himself as somebody who would be uh, prudent and careful uh in the employment of US forces And all of that went by the board as a result of 9-11. I sympathize or empathize with with, uh, President Bush that after 9-11 it it was incumbent upon him to explain what had happened and to explain what he was going to do to make sure it it never happened again. Uh, What I don't empathize with is the tenor of his response, because in effect he became uh, Woodrow Wilson reborn. Uh, suddenly discovering that it was incumbent upon the United States to spread democracy across the Islamic world, uh, and and deciding that uh, Iraq was a suitable place to begin this project of of transformation, uh, and uh, and thereby plunging into uh, a war against a country that had zero involvement uh, in the 9-11 conspiracy, uh, and that, of course, led to what became an epic uh, quagmire. Um, and, and we still live with the, with the results of that, of course.
0: And in Chapter 13, you suggest that answering that question, why did George W. Bush choose to invade Iraq in 2003, is sort of an essential question to ask for two reasons. Number one, to place the third Gulf War into the broader context of the war for the greater Middle East, and two, to consider the magnitude of U.S. failures compared to what it hoped to achieve. And you sort of just referred to those failures, but can you expand a little bit on that?
1: Well, I, you know, the, the, the narrative of the Iraq War, that is to say the war of 2003 to 2011, now resumed, uh, but, if we just view it as the War of two thousand and three twenty eleven the the narrative of that war that is uh, uh, offered by those who supported the war is that it 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 may have encountered difficulties, but it ended successfully, and what they mean by that, what they're referring to is of course the Surge of two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight uh, that General David Petraeus presided over, and, and their argument is that that that, that turned things around that, that that resulted in the effective pacification of of Iraq uh, that things were headed toward a happy ending, and then uh, Barack Obama threw away uh, this success, and therefore any Problems in Iraq uh, post 2009 should be laid at the feet of of, uh, of of Barack Obama. I don't really think that the the surge won the Iraq war. I think that the effects of the surge, the benefits of the surge, were transitory at best. But more than that, even if you buy the argument that Iraq, that, that the surge turned things around, and that Obama blew it. That misses the point that from the, for the Bush administration, the purpose of the Iraq war was not merely to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Rather, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein was supposed to be a way station toward a far more ambitious project. And the far more ambitious project was one that, that argued that victory in Iraq, which they expected to achieve quickly and decisively, that victory in in Iraq would set the stage for the United States to preside over a broader process of bringing the region to heel. I don't believe that Wolfowitz, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Bush thought that having invaded Iraq, we would then have to immediately evade, invade Syria, or invade Iran, or invade Egypt, or invade Saudi Arabia. I do believe what they expected that an effective demonstration of American will and American military might would then position the United States relative to these other countries that they would have to basically pay attention to our demands and that they would have to undertake internal changes uh... that would ultimately eliminate uh... the causes of of uh, anti-american terrorism and the point here is that when the invasion of iraq didn't lead to that quick victory even taking into account the surge that 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 broader project of transformation was abandoned and indeed was was forgotten uh, what we are left then of course is an escalation of military involvement post-9-11 in, in a variety of countries. And you ticked off uh, some, some of them uh, a, a, a few minutes ago. It's not simply Iraq and Afghanistan. It's Iraq, Afghanistan, it's Syria, it's Libya, it's, it's Yemen, it's Somalia, it, it's various uh, countries in the in, in the western part of, of Africa, it, it, it's Pakistan. All of this military activity has produced... Nothing of value. If anything, and we have d- we have we have increased the chaos and anarchy in the region, thereby making things worse.
0: I wanted to ask you a broader question, but I'm thinking I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Afghanistan and my Afghan friends and my my Afghanistan war veteran friends. Their heads are always ready to explode because they feel as if their war the situation in Afghanistan, has it's, it's almost been virtually totally ignored. Um, Absolutely. One of the most disappointing things, and I didn't expect much from Obama in terms of foreign policy, but by far one of the most disappointing aspects or decisions that Obama made during his time in office was to escalate the war in Afghanistan. Can you talk about that war specifically and the role it plays even today, uh, America's longest war in the history of our country, and yet you'd be very hard to find any of this mentioned in any of the mainstream news outlets.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wrote a piece a couple of Or let alone
0: talked about during the election. I don't mean to interrupt you, but another thing that was beyond fear, yeah, pur- uh, no, infuriating heard, I mean, think, wasn't for people about was that election. none of this was mentioned in any significant way during the, the uh, presidential elections.
1: And Trump didn't mention Afghanistan in his State of the Union, in his uh, inaugural address. He, he didn't mention yep. it in his speech before yep. the joint session of con- uh, Congress. Afghanistan has indeed uh, been totally forgotten, despite the fact that the war continues uh, even to the present moment. I think it's a disgrace. I think it's a, it's a travesty. But to your question, you uh, can never discount the importance of domestic politics in explaining why we do the things that we do. And I think that that probably is the principal explanation for Obama's Afghanistan surge that he announced at the end of 2009. Remember that as a candidate, he said... Here's a guy who didn't know anything about running the world. He said, elect me president because I know that the, uh, that the Iraq war is a stupid war. Elect me president because I will win the Afghanistan war, which he described as a necessary war. Now, I think, I think that he made yep. that statement less because he was committed to winning the war in Afghanistan than because, for domestic political purposes, he had to protect his Protect himself against the charge of being a wimp, and so, so uh, posturing uh, that he would take a muscular approach to Afghanistan was a way to preempt that that criticism. So he wins, uh, and 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 now he finds himself in a position where he's he's expected to make good on that that commitment. Uh, I think he allowed himself to be snookered uh, by General Stanley McChrystal uh, in, into. Believing uh, that a, a, a modest increase in the level of U.S. forces for a limited period of time could possibly, through the implementation of counterinsurgency doctrine, pacify the country. Now, there will be people who would say that McChrystal asked for 40,000 troops and Obama only gave him 30,000. I don't care if, if Obama had given him 100,000 troops. Uh, McChrystal's approach uh... to that war was simply not going to work and indeed when he tried to apply it in the in the famous uh, Marja operation in the summer of twenty ten it flopped uh... so uh... you're right uh... i mean i i think in many obama did many things that i find commendable uh, but his management of the afghanistan war certainly doesn't uh... doesn't qualify uh, for that
0: So we only have about 10 or 12 minutes left, and I want to bring us up to today. Donald Trump is president. I think one of the biggest mistakes we also made are activists, uh, people who are politically engaged, civically engaged. One of the mistakes that I think we made, or some of us made, was to not criticize the Obama administration for its foreign policy failures, for the continuation of failed policies, also for the expansion of the drone operation the use of special operations forces. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Nick Terse's work, the expansion of operations in in Africa. But I'm also thinking far beyond the greater Middle East. I'm thinking of not only the entire uh, continent of Africa, I'm thinking of the South China Sea, the Asian pivot, events in Ukraine, sort of a new Cold War with Russia. What do you make of where the U.S. is now? And I, I would refer to the U.S. empire in the same way that, say, Chalmers Johnson would refer to the U.S. empire. His work was, uh, had a profound impact on me when I was getting out of the Marine Corps. And I, I'm wondering, where does the empire go from here? We don't have, as you mentioned, I was watching some of your previous lectures um, after I read your book, and some of your more recent lectures, you were talking about this incoherence taken to a crazy level with Trump but then also this this lack of a of a way out you know what where do where does the, where do we go today without an anti-war party without a party that's willing to address us empire in a very serious way um it's it seems to me that that we are not only overextended in the greater middle east and throughout africa but across the world uh today with less and less influence which is also i think a con you know, contradiction in terms of what people in U.S. power think we can do.
1: Well, we're in a very difficult uh, circumstance, and I think you're putting your finger on one of the key factors, and that is that uh, you know, notwithstanding the absence of success that we have achieved through our militarized pursuit of hegemony, there is no significant uh There's no anti-war, anti-interventionist political party. Uh, Hillary Clinton, as as Trump's adversary, was probably more committed to the proposition that the use of American military power can put things right than Trump himself is. So the only way we're going to get out of our fix is if we can... Find ways to promote greater awareness among the American people about the failures of U.S. policy, better appreciation of those failures, and I think also about the fact that we are engaging in counterproductive wars in a part of the world that, in fact, is not the part. where, where, where the fate of the planet and, 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 the, and the well-being of our country is not going to be decided, I believe that in a geopolitical sense, East Asia is far more important to our well-being than is the greater Middle East. The challenge of the 21st century is to see if we can find a way for to, to maintain a modicum of harmony among the principal players in the Asia-Pacific region at a time of enormous change with the rise of China being but one example of that change. That's where things are, are the, the fate of our planet uh, in a geopolitical sense is, is to be determined. And then beyond geopolitics, there's the whole question of climate change and, and how we can somehow manage or reduce the damage that uh, a modern industrial society is, is doing to the environment. And to the extent that our intellectual attention is focused on the greater Middle East, to the extent that that's where we are pouring hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to to no particular purpose, then these larger problems go uh, insufficiently addressed. And I think only when the American people come to understand that we've taken our eye off the ball does it become possible then... Have a political movement and a political party that would uh, challenge uh, the the consensus that has brought us to where we are.
0: And I'm thinking not only of the geopolitical crises abroad, and as you mentioned, in within all of this taking place within the context of climate change, I'm also thinking domestically. And I'm thinking of previous empires. I'm also I mentioned Chalmers Johnson's work earlier. I was revisiting some of his work, thinking about his comparing the U.S. empire to two different models of empires, both the British model and the Roman model, the Roman model sort of ending in disaster, the British model ending in some semblance of democracy and and peace and so on. But even domestically here, Professor, we have grave problems, uh, as I'm sure you know, and, and, and we encounter as activists and organizers on a daily basis, poverty, inequality, uh, lack of access to healthcare, lack of education. I mean, we can go on and on about the socioeconomic realities within the United States. Do you also think it's imperative for us to connect that aspect to U.S. foreign policy? So the three to six trillion dollars that will be spent on the war in Iraq, all the while a community 40 miles from where I live in Michigan City, Indiana, and in East Chicago, Indiana, is dealing with a lead crisis, Flint, Michigan, and so on. I'm, I'm, what What do you make of
1: I agree 100%, 100, 150%. I was reading an article in the New York Times yesterday about uh, uh, alcoholism on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. I think it said that uh, unemployment rates, like, I'll get the numbers slightly wrong, but, like, unemployment rate is 90% and alcoholism is, is 80%. I mean, it's just, it's a travesty. I mean, that, that may be an extreme example of the problems afflicting our country up here in New England, where i am we 've the opioid crisis uh, is out of control out of control uh, and and so the notion that uh, we need to go fix the world uh, while there are so many problems in our own country that are are under addressed at the same time we 've got a president who then you know wants to cut <laughs> domestic spending so that he can funnel more money to the Pentagon. Um, it uh, y- you end up scratching your head uh, it, it's uh, and
0: there's nothing conservative about that either I mean so we're not talking about it. it's it's interesting to me when people say oh well we're going to make the government smaller it reminds me of Reagan the government wasn't made smaller it was the nope. state apparatus was repurposed so you take portions right. of the state that used to provide social services right. you cut that funding and you repurpose that funding to further militarization
1: right no no nor, nor am I suggesting that if we just you know threw more money at the uh, Drug treatment programs that we would make all that go away. I think. I think that. Sure. Ju- just as the just as the, the the underlying problems that produce dysfunction in the greater Middle East uh, are uh, deep seated uh, and and therefore not uh, susceptible to a an imposed military solution by outside forces, so too. Uh, some of these problems that afflict our own country are deep-seated and are not susceptible to easy solutions. That said, it seems to me when you start stacking up the responsibilities of the United States government, the responsibilities to the American people should come before our responsibilities to trying to fix you know, Syria. And I don't and say Trump that in any way. That. Pardon?
0: And on some level, Trump did tap into that.
1: Well, he did tap into it, I think, with with the language of America first. Uh, but right. but, and and I and, and I could make a case uh, that there is that America the phrase America first can't contain the beginnings of wisdom, uh, or at least of of coming to a more rational uh, set of of priorities. But nothing that he has done since become com- becoming president suggests that he's capable or willing to to bring about that kind of change
0: I have two short questions for you we only have a few minutes left I'm wondering you mentioned an anti-war political party what do you think about an anti-war movement so I we saw I think a little bit of that during the Bush era when I became involved with different movements a a lot of that went away when Obama was elected but what do you make of that relationship between say movement politics and you mentioned uh, the lack of an anti-war party
1: well,' it's, uh, this is you know you open up a, a new uh, sort of subject here, and I think it gets to the absence of most Americans having any significant skin in the game here. Reliance right. on an all-volunteer force, which is really a professional military, means that the burden of sacrifice falls on a very limited number of people. And although we pay lip service collectively to the to the uh, imperative of, of supporting the troops, uh, that is just lip service, and there's no serious, there's minimal, uh, serious attention given to where we send the troops and, and what 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 they're required to do. You again, your earlier point about the Afghanistan having become a forgotten Afghanistan war having become a forgotten war, even while it's still in progress. And I think as long as that is the case, uh, it'll be very difficult. People have these sentimental memories about the anti-war movement of the 1960s during Vietnam. Well. That, war, that movement came about at least to some degree uh, because young people didn't want to be forced to go fight in a war that they viewed as uh, either stupid or counterproductive. And you got to have a stake uh, in order to engage large numbers of Americans in a serious way.
0: Absolutely agree. The last question I have, and I like to ask all of our guests this, what are you currently reading? Any suggestions? What are you currently getting into?
1: Yeah, I'm reading the essays by James Baldwin uh, in a volume by the Library of America. I'm embarrassed to say it. I'd really never read James Baldwin, and now I am, and he's an unbelievably powerful and insightful uh, writer.
0: He absolutely is. How about on the subject, Professor? Any Any books that have come out recently, any authors or historians or analysts that you would recommend for people for further reading
1: you mean related to what we're doing militarily
0: yeah related to the war for the greater middle east and what we uh, talked no, about today you know, I,
1: I honestly no and, and, and i think that's because i've sort of had my fill of it and i'm my own sort of intellectual interests are are shifting and uh, you know I, I keep writing short rants myself about what's what's going on in that arena but my own serious reading is i mean I, I i there, there isn't, I have a need, uh, maybe others don't, but I have a need to probe more deeply into the underpinnings of, of why we do what we do, uh, which really means coming to a better understanding of American culture. And that's why writers like James Baldwin uh, have so much to contribute.
0: And you know what we didn't mention much of, and I, I, maybe this is part ideology, maybe this is just part of your, your pragmatic studies and the conclusions you've come to, but we haven't really mentioned the, the influence of, of, say, corporate interests. Obviously not a topic we can broach in two minutes, but can you talk a little bit about why certain foreign policy analysts might address that issue more than, than say, you've, you've addressed it here today? So, you know, oil companies and corporations and uh, uh, weapons contractors and so forth can also play a role. I mean, I think it, I mean
1: maybe role. it shouldn't go without saying, but I think it does go without saying. There, you know, there is a military-industrial complex. Uh, it it doesn't i think is doesn't wield quite the clout in terms of our economy as it did back when President Eisenhower coined the term but it's still very very powerful it's clear uh, it's undeniable uh, that corporate uh, concerns weigh heavily on any administration republican or democratic you no know, it's not it's, it, 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 it's not just Trump that stocks his Uh, administration with uh, senior uh, officials uh, from Goldman Sachs, Uh, the Democrats do the same thing. Uh, So the interests of Wall Street are always going to be uh, protected, and uh, that's just a a fact of life in our politics.
0: Well, here I'm thinking of uh, our old friend Smedley Butler.
1: All right, Professor.
0: Thank you very much for your time. I really, I greatly appreciate it. I think your your work is indispensable, and I look forward to reading all of your future stuff. So, thank you very Thanks much very for coming much. on the program. I think people will learn a lot from this. Okay, bye bye. All right, thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. Andrew Basevich, uh, professor, and we're talking about his book, America's War for the Greater Middle East. Check it out. You can find it on Amazon, published by Random House. Definitely get the book. We only talked about, I think within an hour, I've mentioned this before, but in an hour long program, you can talk about maybe one chapter's worth of information. So in a book of, I think, 15 chapters, roughly, you definitely need to check it out. So in any case, you're listening to Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Enjoy your week. We'll talk to you next Monday. That is neither organic, organic
1: Simply what We don't know
0: the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast.